NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. By the time we find out exactly what the human impact is on the Earth's climate, it may be too late to change things. So scientists are sending probes to other planets for some answers, planets that also have hotter temperatures from the greenhouse effect. For Mars, that increment is about 5 degrees above what it would otherwise be. Earth, it's about 35 degrees. In fact, without our greenhouse effect, we'd be in a perpetual ice age. Venus is the runaway greenhouse effect, where it's 500 degrees excess temperature brought about from these gases. Interplanetary science and global warming this week on Living on Earth. Also, using your wallet to lighten the climate impact of your car. We do mitigate emissions. We just don't do it at the tailpipe of that vehicle. We'll have those stories and more, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the end of April, NASA launched two satellites into orbit designed to tell us how clouds affect global warming. This is not the only space mission intended to shed light on climate. The Venus Express, a European spacecraft, recently eased into orbit around Venus to study its atmosphere. The craft will circumnavigate the planet nearest to Earth for at least two Venusian days, that's about 485 Earth days, and gather information to increase understanding about climate change on this planet. With me now is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist and heads New York's Hayden Planetarium. Neil, welcome back to Living on Earth. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. I detect that there's increased interest among the international space agencies in climate change. What are they looking at particularly? The way to think about that is every next mission now knows that climate change is a big issue. And so as you design those spacecraft, that you will design them slightly differently to explore how what drivers may be responsible for climate change. In the past, you, all you really cared about was perhaps tomorrow's weather or whether it would rain this afternoon. And so once you understand that there's something bigger happening, you get to change the scope and the vision statement of what it is that drives your satellite design and the questions that you aim to answer with the experiments on board. So yes, I think we're all kind of worried, and even people who didn't used to be worried are worried. Now, let's look at NASA's satellite mission. They've got one satellite that is going to be using LIDAR, which is like radar, only it's a laser instead of radio waves, and uh, an infrared, to look at clouds. What's important about clouds in terms of climate change? The atmosphere is one of the most complex systems you could possibly model scientifically. There are all of these drivers. There are heat sources. There are heat sinks. There's movement of countless numbers of particles. There are aerosols. There is the human intervention with the weather. And when you combine all of this, what you really want is the best possible data you can obtain. And the way to do that is not simply look up at the bottoms of clouds. You want to look at what they look like from the top, but also you want to probe what's going on inside of them. So it's the three-dimensional structure of clouds that'll add to the database of these atmospheric modelers so that we can claim to understand what is going on right above our heads. Neil, let's talk about the European project. Uh, This is the Venus Express. Now, as I understand it, they're going to orbit Venus uh, for a while to try to shed some light on climate change on Earth. How are they going to do that? Well, first of all, not all of space is NASA. People need to remember that. And there's not enough attention, I think, given to the rest of the world's efforts to understand Earth and the solar system. The European Space Agency 
is one among several. Japan has one. Of course, Russia has one as well, and, and, and China has a nascent one. But these efforts, Europe said they want to figure out what's going on on Venus. Venus is one of the most mysterious places in the solar system. It's known as our sister planet. It's about the same size as Earth, but it's completely different climactically. It's nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's a thick cloud cover, which triggers a runaway greenhouse effect, which is responsible for that high temperature. And so one of the most mysterious planets, simply because it's cloaked from our view, needs this kind of attention, which we should have given it a long time ago. What is in the thick clouds of Venus? Yeah, Venus, you know, according to legend is, you know, Venus is the goddess of love and beauty. And in the sky, it's a gorgeous thing to behold, particularly when it's juxtaposed near the crescent moon in the dawn or twilight sky. But when you get a closer look and you realize that it's got this thick atmosphere that's nearly 100 times the atmospheric pressure of what's here on Earth. So if I just plopped you down on the surface of Venus, you'd get crushed, and then you would vaporize. So <laughs> these, are <not> pleasant, <laughs> these are not pleasant things that are going on there. Uh, from what we do know about Venus, its surface is interesting because it's much, much smoother than should be the case given the history of meteor impacts on planet surfaces. And there's been a long suspicion that the surface got completely repaved by some kind of episodic or catastrophic volcanic activity where lava just sort of spills out into the lowlands, creates these broad, flat, smooth surfaces hiding any cratering record. One of the things people are trying to understand is what's going on in Venus's atmosphere, what's going on on Venus's surface. Neil, what are the planets that have greenhouse effects, that is, where the atmosphere lets the sunlight in and blocks radiation from escaping, like Earth and Venus? First, you have to recognize some of the most common greenhouse gases. The one we all know about is carbon dioxide, and that's most of Venus's and Mars's atmosphere. But then there's also water vapor is, makes a good greenhouse gas, as well as methane. And so look around the solar system for planets that have those in its atmosphere, and they will be energy-trapped in that atmosphere, solar energy trapped, and thereby giving those places a slightly or excessively higher temperature than it otherwise would. For Mars, that increment is about 5 degrees above what it would otherwise be. Earth, it's about 35 degrees. In fact, without our greenhouse effect, we'd be in a perpetual ice age. Venus is the runaway greenhouse effect, where it's 500 degrees excess temperature brought about from these gases. Neil, what decides a planet's climate? That's an excellent question because it's completely different if a planet doesn't have water when compared with if it does. So on Mars and Venus, it's the sun heating the surface, creating these sort of vertical convective currents where basically the atmosphere boils. The lower part heats and hot air rises, as we all know, and goes up to the top and then cycles back down again. So this can create currents not only top to bottom but side to side as you have a rotating planet. On Earth, we have not only land but ocean, and so that complicates things because the sun heats the ocean, the ocean puts water vapor into the atmosphere, and sideways air currents carry that water vapor over the land, and you get too much of that, you get rainstorms. But in the end, the sun is completely responsible for what's going on with our climate. Without the sun, we would just have this stagnant atmosphere and we would be frozen. <laughs> so the sun does a lot of things for Earth, including accounting for our climate. Neil deGrasse Tyson heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York. He's also the new host of PBS's Nova Science Now that begins with this fall season. Neil, thanks for taking this time. 
It's a pleasure to be back with you. To get a clearer view of the universe, astronomers are pushing the limits of technology, lofting new telescopes into space, burying them deep underground in abandoned mines, and placing them atop some of the world's highest and most remote mountains. Jean Kumagai recently traveled to the Andes of Chile to see one of these extreme telescopes, and she has this report. To reach one of the highest telescopes in the world, you have to travel up, of course, up along a rutted dirt road that winds its way to the peak of Cerro Chacnantor, nearly 17,000 feet above sea level. The higher we climb in our dust-covered pickup, the more the wind howls and the colder it gets. Soon, tall snowdrifts, the remnants of a recent blizzard, surround us. Oh, it's really clear up here. Yep. Our destination is the new Atacama Pathfinder Experiment, or APEX, the largest radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. It sits on a rocky plateau near the summit, a giant shining white dish that looks improbably high-tech against the austere mountain landscape, kind of like finding a bullet train on the moon. This telescope is big, 39 feet across, and every few minutes it slowly rotates, depending on which part of the universe astronomers want to observe. Lars Ake Nyman, the telescope station manager, says the antenna consists of 264 polished aluminum panels, each held in place by five screws. Engineers standing in a cherry picker had to adjust each screw by hand until the panels formed a near-perfect parabolic dish. It takes two days to go through all the screws. And we did it in a weather not too, uh, yeah, very similar to this, so it was not very pleasant. <laughs> Nyman and his colleagues who work at the telescope endure more than just bad weather. The oxygen-poor air leaves many a visitor dizzy and disoriented. Nyman says for some people, it can be life-threatening. Other people, when they come up, look okay to start with, but then the oxygen level drops rapidly and they enter into a stage of shock. But for astronomers, the risk is worth it. Apex is a relatively new breed of telescope designed to measure energy emitted at millimeter wavelengths, which are much longer than visible light waves. Astronomer Carl Menton, the principal investigator here, says Apex is especially useful for studying interstellar clouds, vast expanses of cosmic dust and gas where new stars are born. And one of the big mysteries in astronomy is how do exactly stars form? And we try to find that out. And to do that, we study the initial conditions of star formation. So we observe these dust clouds and the emissions of the dust at the molecules allow us to determine the temperature, the mass, and a lot of other things. Turns out, the only way to peer into the interiors of these clouds is with telescopes like Apex. But you have to sight them in a very special place, Menton says, one that's both high and dry. At sublimeter wavelengths, your biggest enemy is the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere, even at dry sides, has a lot of water in it. That water very effectively absorbs radiation, particularly at the certain special frequencies. So the higher you go, the less water content is in the atmosphere, the drier is it. 
In a few years, an even bigger observatory, called the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or ALMA, will be built alongside of APEX. Comprising 50 antennas, all working in tandem, ALMA will be the world's most sensitive millimeter instrument. When it's completed in 2012, Menton believes ALMA will yield the final answers to many of the questions of submillimeter astronomy. Questions like, what exactly happens when an interstellar cloud collapses? And what does the birth of a star look like? Until ALMA's arrival, though, Menton says it's fun to use APEX and start exploring those questions now. For Living on Earth, I'm Jean Kumagai. Jean Kumagai is a reporter for Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum Magazine. To find out more about the Apex Telescope, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Coming up, carbon confessions and how you can redeem your sins against the climate. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, saving the forests of Liberia, one tree at a time. But first... Bless me, Father Philip, for I've sinned. It's been only 200 miles since my last carbon confessional. May the good Ford forgive you, my son. For your penance, read the Kyoto Protocol and sign up for TerraPass. Now drive off in peace, will you? Yeah, a lot of people are feeling guilty about driving those gas-guzzling, carbon-belching cars. Well, the Ford Motor Company has a better idea. Greener miles through a program it calls TerraPass. And joining me now to explain how TerraPass works is its creator. Carl Ulrich is a professor of operations and information management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Hello, sir. Hi there. Where'd you come up with this idea of the TerraPass? The TerraPass grows out of my own personal experience. I own some property in Vermont, and I live in Philadelphia. And so I spend a lot of time driving between Philadelphia and Vermont in the summertime. On one of those long trips, I was thinking about all the fuel that I was consuming and started to think about ways that I might mitigate or reduce the impact I was having by using all that fuel. You felt badly about this? You felt a need to atone for your use of this fuel? It was less atonement and and more a desire to actually do something about it, to actually take care of the damage that I was causing. And so you got this idea to use money to offset the environmental impact. How does it work? The way TerraPass works is that an individual consumer enrolls their automobile in TerraPass. They buy what we call a TerraPass for their automobile. It costs about $50 a year. We then take the proceeds of the sale of that TerraPass from all of our members, we pool them together, and then we make investments in technologies that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that is carbon dioxide emissions, in other parts of the economy. How do we know that these investments are actually offsetting? It's a good question. And 
There are really two answers. The simple answer is that we actually go and look at the projects and get to know the people who are actually implementing the projects and develop a level of trust that they're actually doing what they say they're going to do. We also engage a third-party certifying agency called greene.org, which has a set of standards that it applies to these projects and then certifies that, in fact, the offset that we claim we're providing is, in fact, delivered. Now, I can go on the Ford Motor Company website and find a little spot where I can click on the Ford products and actually get linked right to your company to buy an offset for them if I'm driving a Lincoln Town Car or Lincoln Navigator or whatever. Some people would say that you're helping Ford uh, clean up its image, that it should have been making hybrid and high-efficiency vehicles many, many years ago. How do you respond to that? Well, Ford has been taking a variety of actions on the environmental front, and we really don't take a position on Ford per se. The way we look at it is that by getting access to Ford's customers, we can allow those customers to make a positive change for the better in terms of the environment. And so that, to us, is a benefit to society. And given that we believe it's a really good thing, we think that Ford should get credit for taking steps towards providing those offsets to its consumers. Now, some would say, though, if you let people buy their way out of their carbon emissions and continue to drive fossil fuel burners, it it just ensures that there'll always be a need to mitigate that carbon footprint. And it's just sort of treating the symptom and not really the root of the problem. Well, push back a little bit on that. We we do mitigate emissions. We just don't do it at the tailpipe of that vehicle. So if a person were not to join TerraPass, then the mitigation or the remediation at the electrical utility where we cause the offset to occur wouldn't happen. Now, there's a deeper question, which is, what does this do to consumer behavior? We find that members of TerraPass become quite active members of a community and begin to become quite interested in learning more about climate change and the offset markets and the greenhouse effect generally. And so we actually think that TerraPass can be an agent or a mechanism for increasing awareness rather than just being a, a way to appease one's guilt. Carl Ulrich teaches business at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much, sir. My pleasure. And now, more Carbon Confessionals with Father Philip. Bless me, Father Philip, for I've emitted fewer greenhouse gases. It's been 600 miles since my last confession in my new hybrid. Go, my dear. The road is blessed before you. Oh, thank you, Father. Uh, fill it up there, will ya, Father Phil? My, uh, my hammer there's on empty. to hear from you, our listeners. Now we often hear from you that the news about environmental change can be so depressing, it will be nice from time to time to hear messages of hope. 
So, on the occasion of the release of Bruce Springsteen's new tribute album to folk singer and activist Pete Seeger, we rebroadcast a profile we produced about the banjo-plucking octogenarian. People wrote in to say Seeger's story of stubborn hope and personal activism on the national or hometown level continues to inspire and instruct. WBEZ Chicago area listener Alan Shesky wrote, Just wanted to say thank you for starting my day with Pete Seeger this morning. It was a wonderful wake-up call. And Liza Rognes, a listener to KUOW in Seattle, said, Pete Seeger, my love of history and humanity found its first roots in your songs, played on an old stereo console in Great Falls, Montana during the 1960s. Your voice will always call me home and give me courage. Joe Gold, who hears us on KQED in San Francisco, had this to say, Pete Seeger stole my heart. Even if I didn't agree with him politically, I'd have to admire the absolute decency of the man and how he lives his beliefs. And his closing line, the bumper sticker for his pessimist friend, will adorn my wall. There's no hope, but I may be wrong. And finally this from Susan Craze, another San Franciscan. What a gift your Pete Seeger segment gave me today, she writes. I have been spiraling into deep despair for our country and our world. But hearing Pete Seeger lifted a dark cloud and filled my heart and soul with hope. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is letters at LOE.org. Once again, letters at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. CDs and transcripts are $15. The head of Liberia's largest timber company, Hus van Kuvenhofen, is on trial in The Hague, charged with violating a U.N. embargo by supplying weapons and mercenaries to Charles Taylor, Liberia's former president. Mr. Taylor himself is set to go on trial for a long list of crimes against humanity during his six-year rule. One person who contributed in no small measure to these developments is Silas Siako. Mr. Siako is a Liberian environmental activist who published a report detailing the links between guns and illegal logging in Liberia. For his actions, Mr. Siako received the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize. I caught up with him at the award ceremony in San Francisco. So what got you interested in forests? The forest is pretty much a part of every Liberian uh, life in terms of uh, health, in terms of uh, food security, in terms of uh, um, basic culture and traditional practices. But actually my work started back in uh, 2000 when I worked with a local non-governmental organization um, and my responsibility was basically going out and talking to people, trying to understand their plight uh, in the face of the sudden increase in logging activities in their areas. The more I talk to people, the more I listen to the stories. Everything that uh, had to do with the welfare, that had to do with human rights in the communities, it was kind of everything was linked to the timber industry. Uh, For example? Those that were involved in the extraction of timber in their communities were the ones that were organizing private militias that were involved in perpetrating different forms of human rights abuses. Um, the companies were uh, bulldozing entire villages doing road construction, um, bulldozing their way through uh, private farms. Uh, their cash crops were being destroyed with absolutely no compensation whatsoever. 
So everything that was happening in their community was very much linked to what was happening in the timber industry. And so we began to take a deeper interest in the timber industry as a root cause of some of the problems that they were facing in their communities. Sounds to me like very dangerous work. I don't think these guys would want somebody looking into what they're doing. In a lot of respect, I would say yes, um, because it actually at the time it was pretty dangerous uh, trying to do that. And we did realize at the time that it was pretty dangerous. But for us, it was something that had to be done. Um, here were people stuck up in the villages, absolutely no access to the media, absolutely no voice in their communities. Their resources were being plundered. Their lifestyles were being disrupted by the companies. And somebody just had to come to the rescue. Somebody had to uh, kind of amplify their voices out there. And that was why we had to take on that responsibility. Tell me a story of a particular village that you went to and helped and maybe even involved a bit of a close call for your associates or yourself? Well, um, there was one particularly moving incident uh, where we had gone to a village to talk to people, and they had prepared food for us, and we were sitting there, um, and there wasn't no water, any uh, water around for drinking. And I said, oh, can I have some water to drink? And then they said, oh, can you, and they were talking to a little kid and said, can you hurry up with the water? And what was he doing? He was kind of trying to filter very muddy water through a bag of sand. And that's the water we were supposed to be drinking. Every time I think about uh, the timber industry, that picture comes right back at me. And so I said to myself, if I can do anything to change his condition, and this was like a 10-year-old kid, and he was uh, basically having to lived the life he was living because the revenue that was coming from the timber trade, none of it was going back into their communities. So that level of deprivation for us was uh, something that we considered unacceptable. And just coming up against the industry to talk about that in the public, um, a lot of people, even up today, back in Liberia, don't quite understand why we did what we had to do because they all knew that it was pretty dangerous. So every day... Uh, we had to live with that fear. We were living, uh, kind of living a very dangerous life, walking very difficult lives, but it had to be done. Did anyone ever threaten you? Uh, <laughs> Worst of all, the president at the time, Charles Taylor, he was at the head of all those uh, illegal militia forces, different uh, paramilitary groups, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And he was very unhappy with the report that we had published. And he went on national radio and said um, if he was fortunate to ever lay hands on the pe person who published that report, their family would have a long time grieving. Um, and so that was a very strong uh, kind of uh, remark coming from the president at the time. And I was supposed to appear before the Senate to give reasons behind the publication of the report that we had published. And failure to appear will lead the Senate with, the Senate with no other alternative but to take very strong action against me. What had you put in your report that so angered Charles Taylor? Well, simply uh, kind of putting the information that was out there together in a very organized manner, presenting it to the public. He didn't simply like that, that people were being made aware of what was happening. For example, timber production had increased by 1,300% in 2002. 
And that kind of translated into several uh, millions dollar in tax revenue that was due to the government. And so what we were saying was, why was it that none of that revenue was going back to the communities from where the timber was being extracted? Kids were uh, growing up, no school, no hospital, no clinics. And everybody in those villages were all living below the $1 per day uh, poverty line. So simply bringing out that information and telling people what's coming from your community is worth several million dollars. And here is the government plundering those resources, and none of that is being used to better your lives. Um, He simply didn't want that information out there. And then we began to show to other people also that that revenue was actually being used to pay for arms that was being brought into the country to uh, wage a war against basically the Liberian people because um, it was the ordinary people who were actually uh, being affected by the war. A little over uh, 200,000 persons were supposed to have died as a result of that war. So what are you going to do next in Liberia? What we are working on now is trying to find ways to strengthen uh, local people, local communities, to find their own voices. Um, I'm not very old, but uh, in the next five to ten years, I would like to see myself do something else. And So what we're trying to do now is to spend the next uh, couple of years, five, six, seven years from now, helping those communities, strengthening uh, local structures, different grassroots-level uh, institutions, that would then begin to take on their own issues, take on their own cause, champion their own uh, cause, and stand up for their own rights, so that we don't necessarily have to do this uh, for them for eternity. Silas Siako is the 2006 African winner of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Just ahead, the places where men go to get away from it all. First, this note on emerging science from Bobby Bascom. New research published in the British Journal of Psychiatry has found that people, especially women, born in springtime have higher rates of suicide than those born at other times of year. A study of almost 27,000 suicides in England and Wales found that females born in April, May, or June were 30% more likely to commit suicide, and males 14% more likely than people born in the fall. Researchers also found that mental illnesses such as depression, mood disorders, even alcohol dependence are more common among people born in the spring. Seasonal birth trends have been linked to several diseases, including cancer, heart disease, and brain tumors. Other research indicates that people born in December are more likely to suffer from schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, and narcolepsy. Explanations for the observed correlation between suicide and a spring birth are preliminary, but scientists think that changes in maternal health, including infections and temperature fluctuations, may cause slight changes in brain development of the fetus, which are demonstrated later in life as depression and suicidal tendencies. 
Scientists caution that suicide is a result of a complex set of biological and social factors, and their research simply addresses the possible biological explanations for suicide. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Bobby Bascom. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and Kashi cereals, crackers, and granola bars. Details at Kashi.com. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at Kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation. From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Okay, what do the hunting camp, the barber shop, the recliner, and the remote control all have in common? Well, according to author Jim Twitchell, they're all artifacts of a disappearing space, the places where men go to hide. Professor Twitchell, who teaches advertising at the University of Florida, has been exploring the idea of what he calls man caves, the last places where men can go and be, well, men. He joins me now to talk about his new book, Where Men Hide, which features photographs of favorite male haunts. Jim, hello. Hi, how are you? Now, I got to say, almost uniformly, these are really kind of grimy, dingy, not <laughs> fun looking yeah. places. In fact, I'm looking now towards the beginning of your book. There's a picture that's simply labeled Duck Blind, North Carolina. I can't imagine a place that would be either too cold or too hot or too uncomfortable or too many bugs. I mean, why would someone even want to spend time in a place like that? When I looked at Ken's photographs the first time, I thought to myself, boy, these are the grimiest places. I, I think to some degree, where men go are to places where women don't feel comfortable. And so he feels, okay, this is a place I'm protected. Guys hide? I think guys hide at least in a different way from women. Women seem to be happy to separate, go off with other women or with children. But men seem much more circumspect. Uh, It's much more an event when men get together to do whatever it is that they're going to do together, whether it's make war or play sports, or just uh, separate. Where would they go? Well, in the first part of the 20th century, I was amazed by this statistic, that the average middle-class American working man would very often spend up to four hours a week in the company of other men at his lodge, whether he was a mason or a moose or an elk or an eagle. He worked all day with other men, and then when he had a chance in his free time— He went right back to that group, except now not to work, but to fraternize. And so those fraternal organizations went away, what, replaced by college fraternities? Well, certainly they went to college fraternities, but even college fraternities are really nowhere near as vibrant today as they were even a generation ago. In fact, really many of these places that men used to go now have evaporated. Okay, so where can us guys go to to get away? Well, one of the places we go is uh, into the car, especially at the beginning of the SUV. Almost invariably, the ads had blackened windows, a guy getting in, maybe with one other guy, and uh, just taking off. In fact, my favorite was, I think, for an Isuzu, where the guy 
actually hears the disembodied voice of God saying, go farther, go farther. (laughs) He goes into the woods deeper and deeper. And then finally, the last scene, we see him on a raft heading for a waterfall. And the disembodied voice says, oops, too far. Now, you even explore the crawl space where Saddam Hussein was found. You you seem rather nostalgic in your right through of this. <laughs> you know, it's terrible, but I think Saddam had it pretty close to the to the ideal. He goes down into this little hidey hole and he waits for the storm to pass, and then uh, he had his upstairs house too where it was a terrible mess, but you could see that he had been cooking stuff. He had a copy of Dostoevsky. He had uh, a book of the interpretation of dreams. So he has his upstairs life. And then, uh, you know, when the when the earth starts to rumble and the uh, bombs start to fall, uh, up goes a little trap door and down he goes like a mole. I- interesting, because men hide when they have a chance to downstairs. And all these, like, opium dens and all these uh, gambling caves and speakeasies, we always imagine you walk downstairs below the ground to get to them. I think that's kind of the male place to go to pull the curtains. Yeah, Jim, i got to ask you about this. Uh, You put in your book a picture of your own little office that's tucked away at your summer camp. Um, I got to say, this really looks like the picture of adolescent rebellion. I don't know how old you are, <laughs> but I'm looking at, let's see, an ad for cigarettes. There's way too much junk on the desk to really get anything done. The bedding that you have in there looks like it would not be terribly comfortable, and it just sort of has a really ratty, tattered look to the thing. You're absolutely right, Steve. I mean, this is, if you ever wanted an image of arrested development, uh, this is it. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of trash. It never gets cleaned up. Nobody wants to go there but my guy friends. Yeah, I'm not proud of it, but I feel very comfy when I'm in it. Yeah, you know, in your book, in fact, you devote a little prose as well as the picture to this. And I'd like you to read from the point where uh, you say that men particularly like your, your office. Okay. I know that this space is special to men. Not only do I entertain occasional passers-by who tell me how nifty it is, But whenever I go to big box stores like Lowe's or Home Depot, I note those little prefab sheds in front getting smaller and smaller like Russian dolls. These sheds are supposed to be for tools, but I suspect they are also, so the man of the house can find a house he really can be man of. The small ones are rectangular. The large ones look like Quonset huts. They often come with a door and little windows, just like a child's playhouse. Sometimes they are done in the style of a log cabin. In ads, they are invariably populated by men. And so you write, you suspect that they are also so the man of the house can find a house he can really be man of. Is that the bottom line? Well, you you go and take a look. But my suspicions are it's space that this guy is looking at because he knows it will be his space. All other space in the house and even in the garage, is up for grabs. It used to be that a man had a cellar. That's where his tools were. Or he had a garage. That's where his car and engine was. But uh, now we've lost the cellar. And very often the garage, well, he can't work on the car. The car is much too complicated. So maybe maybe these little sheds out in the corner of his life is where he goes for respite. Jim Twitchell is professor of English and advertising at the University of Florida. His new book is Where Men Hide. Jim, thanks for coming out of hiding. 
It was my pleasure. If you guys want to come out of your caves and socialize with the rest of humanity, we found one place where you can still get away from it all, but do it in style, grace, and go green, too. On a recent stop in San Francisco, someone told us about the Hotel Triton, a funky, eclectic place to stay on the edge of Chinatown that claims to be one of the top environmentally friendly hotels in the city, complete with eco-friendly rooms and eco-celebrity suites. So we stopped by to check it out. Good afternoon, Hotel Triton, Kimpton Properties. This is Amanda. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Hotel Triton. I'm Michael. Very nice to meet you. My pleasure. My name is Michael Pace. I'm the Director of Environmental Programs for Kimpton Hotels. This is an eco-hotel. This is an eco-hotel. We're at the Hotel Triton in San Francisco. It's uh, Kimpton Hotel's most eco-friendly hotel in San Francisco. Uh, You know, so far a whale hasn't hugged me. What's friendly about this? (laughs) That's the beauty of it. I'll show you as we go up to the rooms all the beautiful things that we're doing for the environment. The hotel was actually designed by a group of local designers and artists in the early 90s, and it was the first time that we as a company decided to let go from the control of the design aspect, and we said to the designers and the artists, okay, go create a fun hotel, make it different, make it something unique for the guests, something that San Francisco hasn't seen before. So we go upstairs, I can show you some of our eco rooms and some celebrity suites, which are a lot of fun here at the hotel. I'm taking you up in our mood elevator. As you can see, the lighting is very different to a regular hotel. It's it's very low and red. Yes, it is. And the other one is a little bit brighter and lavender colored. So it's supposed to help you either relax or get ready for the evening, depending if you're coming up or going down. Okay, so welcome to the original eco floor at the Hotel Triton. And this is really where it all began. In 1995, as we were developing the the concept of the hotel, uh, we came up with the concept of having a whole floor dedicated to environmentally aware policies and procedures and programs for the guests. We're going to go into a couple of rooms, and I'm going to show you exactly what we did to retrofit or outfit the rooms to be more eco-friendly. Okay. Follow me right through. We're in room 712. We're on the top floor of the hotel. And um, and one of the things you may notice is that it doesn't look particularly eco or obviously eco to anybody. So what we have done is we've really focused on being non-intrusive in the way we roll out our eco programs. We want guests to come and stay in the hotels because they enjoy the environment and all of the room and also know that they're helping the environment but not in a jarringly negative way or, you know, screaming in your face eco-friendly. This can't be love because I feel so well. No sobs, no sorrows, no sighs. So some of the things that we have in the in the eco-friendly rooms are starting with the bathrooms. All right. The water filtration units and flow controls. So we're also purifying the water as well as reducing the amount of water being used in the bathroom. So the shower pressure is still as good as it would be without, but it's more pure water, and it's only coming down at one, you know, 2.5 gallons per minute. We are eliminating basically all packaging of small bottles, soaps, and shampoos. 
and that's a big part of the waste reduction program in the hotel. By using these, uh, these amenity dispensers, we cut down 100% on that. The soap and the shampoo and even the hand lotion is, is also eco-friendly. It's biodegradable, it's non-toxic and it's hypoallergenic. Above the armoire, you may notice a filtration unit and that has a special filter in it, a HEPA filter, that attracts all the, the, the pollen and the fine dust particles in the room. So it's continuously working 24 hours a day. Okay, we have energy efficient lighting in the rooms and the big part of what we do in these rooms also is that we clean them with um, environmentally friendly cleaners, non-chemical cleaning products. The sheets on the beds are actually made out of organic linens and the towels in the bathrooms are made out of organic uh, linen also. This is too sweet to be love. This can't be love. I would like to show you another room that we have. It's a very unique room. It's called the Woody Harrelson Suite, and it was designed with Woody Harrelson, the actor. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Okay, so we're at, the, at Woody's Oasis, and it's named after him and his foundation, the non-profit Oasis Foundation. And even the boys you can see is clad in bamboo. And so when we developed the concept of embracing the eco-room concept and converting the hotel to being completely eco-friendly, we asked Woody if he'd like to join us in, in the effort and help us design a suite. You want to be where you can see Troubles all the same You want to be where everybody knows your name the flooring is bamboo flooring. This was our first attempt at actually putting bamboo or hardwood flooring in a, in a guest room. It's very durable and it's also at the same time rather soft to the feel, so it's got a very comfortable feel to it. The paint that we use to paint the walls is actually what they call a low VOC paint, a low volatile organic compound paint, which means it has no chemicals or hardly any chemicals in it compared to a regular paint. The, the soft fabrics that you see, the, the drapes on the windows, the headboard, the duvet covers and the, the pillow covers are all made out of hemp. So that was another effort for us to go towards using organic and natural products. We do recycle in our hotels, and that's a big part of what we're doing in, in our environmental program. And at the Triton, we were the first, this was the first hotel where we actually asked the guests to recycle with us. And this is what it goes back to. This is why it's fun having an, an eco program that is a continuous evolution of standards and implementation. So the beauty for us is to set up a system and a, and a culture of environmental awareness that thrives and keeps growing on ideas and suggestions and interactions with the community, with the employees, with the guests. And here we are, back in the lobby again. Well, I want to thank you for taking this time with me today. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Our audio tour of the Hotel Triton in San Francisco was produced by Dennis Foley. Some sounds are secret. A child whispers in another child's ear. A spy taps out a secret code. And nature is no different. As part of the Western Soundscape Project, Jeff Rice reports on one frog's hidden messages.
The thing about frogs is this. You rarely see them, but they're loud when they want to be, and that's usually right around this time of year. I recorded these chorus frogs in northern Utah at a big marsh near the Great Salt Lake. This is their spring mating ritual, and they gather together in an amorous frenzy of loud choruses. Nothing unusual here, typical frog behavior. But a little further up on the hillside, in the smaller streams and marshes, what is interesting is what you don't hear. There are these other frogs, Columbia spotted frogs, that don't do things in the conventional way. To hear them, you would have to stick your head, or a microphone, under the water. Most of the frogs I've been working with call several feet down, and you don't hear anything in the air. Dr. James Platts is a biologist at Creighton University in Omaha and he travels around studying these underwater calls. He first discovered this behavior in frogs in 1989. I was working in a, a narrow canyon, and I spent most of the evening at a pond. There were uh, no animals calling whatsoever. must have been there until about 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning, and it was a soundless night. Um, so I came back about 7 or 8 the next morning, and when I got there, there were three egg masses. Obviously, the frogs had found each other to mate. The egg masses were proof of that. But what struck Platts as odd is that most frogs would have been calling out loud. In the following spring, we, we took a hydrophone down and uh, discovered, uh, to our pleasant surprise, that they, they were quite noisy. Uh, they just called underwater. Platts says the advantages could be many. By calling underwater, the frogs don't alert predators. They can also start the breeding season earlier because the water is typically warmer than the air. On the other hand, without much of an above-ground call, these frogs can tend to get overlooked by humans. Destruction of their wetland habitats has led to severe declines in their numbers across several western states. Columbia's spotted frog populations in southern Idaho and parts of Utah and Nevada are candidates for listing under the Federal Endangered Species Act. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Rice. We leave you this week with the sound of a frog that keeps its head well above water. Carlos Davidson recorded these mountain tree frogs barking away in the Coconino National Forest in Arizona. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, and James Kerwood. Our interns are Bobby Bascom and Emily Taylor. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at kashi.com. Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.